This episode is sponsored by Bubs Naturals, yet another company that I tracked down to bring on as a sponsor because I myself love their products. They are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a 20% discount. But before we get to that, I do want to highlight a few of the products that I use myself. Firstly, collagen. I am about to turn 50, um, and so my hair, my skin, my nails, not really a big concern when I was younger, definitely a lot more of a concern now. However, where I've really seen the impact is joint health and gut health, and have been blown away that when I'm consistent using collagen, Bub's collagen in this case, I see a massive improvement in both. Another area, I drink coffee, love coffee, and in the morning, I use the Halo Creamer. Now, originally, I used the MCT oil powder, but now they have the Halo Creamer, which has also got grass-fed butter in it, a lot more creamy if you're not trying to go for the vegan option that they have as well. Now, it's important to mention as well the altruistic element of Bub's Naturals. The origin story involves Glenn Bub Doherty, one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi, and a good friend of the founders, Sean and TJ. So 10% of every single sale goes towards the Glenn Doherty Foundation. Now, as I mentioned before, they are offering you, the audience, 20% off your purchase if you use the code SHIELD. That's S-H-I-E-L-D at bubsnaturals.com. And finally, if you want to hear more about their products and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 with co-founder Sean Lake. This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, Listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. This episode is sponsored by Inside Tracker. And what makes me smile is before I even started my podcast seven years ago, when listening to other wellness conversations, Inside Tracker was always the company they recommended for comprehensive blood work. Well, now in 2024, they have begun to offer a brand new first responder panel which will cover nine biomarkers hitting several of the pillars of health that affect us in uniform. Stress, heart health, 
metabolism, and gut health. Now, after a very simple intake form, a blood draw, you will get the results sent to your computer, smartwatch, phone, not only detailing where you are on the scale from poor to optimized, but also tips on how you can improve each of these markers. Now, this panel is usually $310, but they are also offering first responders 30% off any of their blood panels. So that brings this specific panel down to only $217. Now, I myself went through their ultimate, which is their comprehensive blood work, which also includes micronutrients, hormones, and other areas of overall health. And I have to say, I was absolutely amazed at firstly how easy it was, but secondly, the comprehensive information I got and the actionable information on how to improve each of my own biomarkers. Now, as with all my sponsors, if you want to hear more about Inside Tracker, you can hear my conversation with senior sales executive Jonathan Levitt on episode 887 of the Behind the Shield podcast. So to sign up or simply learn more, go to insidetracker.com. And for the first responder panel, the easiest way is to Google Inside Tracker first responder panel. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former law enforcement officer and the man behind Fit Responder, Ted Stern. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his early life, his journey into the world of law enforcement, training the tactical athlete, fitness standards, defensive tactics, entrepreneurial ship within the uniform professions, his transition out, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ted Stern. Enjoy. Well, Ted, I want to start by saying thank you so much for reaching out and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I appreciate you having me. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? Well, let's see. I am uh, just near Salt Lake, Utah. I moved out to Utah about three years ago from Southern California. I was born and raised uh, in Southern California. So let's start there. Tell me where in Southern California you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Okay. Uh, I was born in Ventura County, which is about an hour from Los Angeles. Um, I have a bunch of half sisters uh, and a half brother. I have um, a couple of full siblings. Uh, My dad's dead and my mom is, I don't know where she is, drug addict mental illness. I haven't talked to her in probably 15 years. Um, what else did you ask me? Born and raised in Ventura County. That's kind of a family dynamic. I've created since created my own family. I love very much. 
But um, what else? What else can I share with you there? Well, I'm sorry to hear about you know the kind of family dynamic you experience, but this is an important kind of thing to really pull out the shadows that so many of us that sought a life in uniform have less than than Disney like upbringing. So. You know, when we talk about the mental health side in the first responder profession, a lot of time we'll be like, oh, well, Ted was on that that shooting or, you know, James is on that extrication with the dead child, but they don't factor in or what happened from zero to, you know, 18, 20, 25 before we ever put the badge on. No, that's true. Um, I mean, a big influence for me becoming a cop was seeing deputies show up to my house. Um, they talk to me, you know, they you know, dealt with my mom and her various issues and uh, that they were kind of a source of comfort and like reassurance when I'm a little kid and, you know, I looked up to them. Um, So yeah, that was a big influence on me for sure. Now I'm writing a book at the moment. I really want to tell the multi-generational trauma story because no one was born an addict. No one was born wanting to be in a gang. You know, this is what happens as we evolve or devolve through a series of life events. When you kind of look back at your parents' parents, did did they kind of uh, were they exposed to kind of trauma in there? Did you ever see a kind of causation to some of the uh, the struggles that they had themselves? I didn't know them that well, uh, really. I mean, um, but I did, funny enough, see my mom's room that she kind of grew up in, and it was pretty well preserved. And she was like an obvious hippie. And I, I heard some things that she kind of experimented and, you know, probably did drugs. And obviously that's a big contributor to a lot of people's mental illness. I know that she was a drug addict as well throughout her life and, and, and an alcoholic. Um, so I wonder, you know, if, who knows, maybe she just dropped acid once and it, and it sent her off the wrong path. I mean, there's a lot of like the butterfly effect, right? There's a lot of even small events that could send someone on a totally different trajectory um, but I don't know of anything specific in terms of her parents, uh, you know, experiencing trauma or, or even even her, really. But there could have been, of course. And how old were you when you lost your father? Um, let's see, 24. He was old. He was he was 89. He conceived me when he was like, you know, what, 67, 65? I don't recall. But he was a World War II vet. Great, great guy. I, I you know, I still think highly of him. Um, but yeah, he had me old and, and, uh, I think my mom was 33 and he was old enough to be your grandpa almost kind of a weird situation, but, um, yeah, he's my biological dad. So he died at 89 cancer, all kinds of issues. Um, which was, I was able to kind of grieve over time because I knew from very early on that I knew, I knew he was going to die early. You know, I knew I wasn't going to, he wasn't going to see his grandchildren most likely. Uh, so, um, that helped a little bit, but yeah, he, he died. I think I was when I was 24. We've lost a lot of them. I actually sat and interviewed two Iwo Jima veterans, um, back in December. Um, and you know, the, the, the percentage now is, is absolutely minute of how many veterans of that era that we have left. And a lot of them didn't speak very openly. My granddad was in the Orkney, Orkney islands protecting the UK against the German bombers. Um, and never, never really talked about the war. Were you able to share stories either when you were younger or maybe putting a uniform on, opening some doors for that conversation? He, yeah, my dad told me stories for sure. He had a lot of close calls. Um, he didn't get into the gory details, but, you know, he, he told me he saw friends die and, and 
Um, it was very hard. And, and actually, he told me from a young age, he's like, if you ever get into the military, he's like, I will disown you. Like, he was so shook. I think he was definitely proud of serving his country and, and fighting the Nazis was totally a, like an honorable thing to do. I don't think he necessarily had regrets per se, but I, I think it shook him so badly. He didn't he didn't want his own son probably in a selfish way, right? Like, yeah, let, let, let the soldiers fight the good fight, but like, I don't want my son to experience that. So he told me for a long time, like, don't you dare enlist. Um, and even when I became a cop, he wasn't happy about that. He wasn't happy about me exposing myself to danger or seeing some trauma or whatever. Um, but no, he, he told me some wild stories. I mean, of nearly getting killed a bunch of times or, or capturing a, a German um, without even a weapon by surprise and like all kinds of cool things. So I, yeah, I, I'm, I've written a lot of it down. I think it'd be a cool, maybe part of a book or something to, to share because it's pretty awesome stories. And as you said, there's going to be less and less of them as these guys and gals pass away. Absolutely. Well, I, I don't know if this is actually a thing, but I can't help but wonder if that generation, the, the, the pendulum swung strongly the other way they'd seen so many horrors of war that they try to protect their own children from which then may in you know down the road as they got older had factored into you know entitlement and some other things because we always look at the young kids about entitlement but i would argue that you know some of our pensioners these days you know can be yeah, acting entitled as well and you know they they talk about that when you when you've you know when you've had such hard times you're really kind of fighting to make them you know your children to never experience that level of trauma and suffering so but sometimes that overprotection can almost swing the other way too far yeah and no, i think that's a that's fair and you know i didn't experience a ton of horrible things as a cop obviously some things that were bad but i i wouldn't i i mean unless my kids were dead set on becoming a first responder I, i'd probably want to steer them another direction too i mean you're gonna look at life differently you're going to look at life through a different lens that I, I don't know if necessarily is good, right? I mean, maybe there is something to say about ignorance is bliss, right? And, you know, maybe I don't want them to see what could be seen as a first responder. So even in that kind of similarly, I'd like to maybe really caution them, if not persuade them to go another direction, even though we need it, right? We need first responders. We need soldiers. We need people to fight that good fight. Um, and I have a ton of respect for for first responders and military, obviously, but yeah, it's, it's tough. Like, how do you, how do you tell your kids, like the people you love absolutely the most in, in our program to protect them? How do you tell them? Yeah, go ahead. Expose yourself to some of life's worst things that you can see. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Well, going back to your early life, what about sports and exercise? What were you doing through the uh, school ages? Yeah, so that's f funny because, you know, my dad liked tennis, so I played tennis um, and wasn't super passionate about it. So I did okay with that, but I was pretty weak and scrawny and skinny. Um, didn't like working out. My dad did. My dad enjoyed lifting weights and um, he tried to get me into it and I was not into it. I mean, I remember being 13 and being in the gym with him and going, this hurts. Like, <laughs> I don't want to do this. I had no desire to be strong, buff. Um, I came later in life, you know, um, and, uh, yeah, funny, quick story. I ran into, a, a one of my coaches from high school later on in life when I was pretty built and like, obviously muscular 
and he was blown away because all he remembered was this weak kid who complained about doing push-ups, didn't want to work out, lazy. So he, he was like, anything can happen. This is amazing. So yeah, I didn't, I did not have a strong athletic background. Like I said, played some tennis, you know, dabbled here and there, but I was not an athletic kid, was not in my wheelhouse at, at all. And it wasn't really pushed in my family. I moved and played a lot, but I was still really scrawny. I was, I was very small. I had my growth spurt when I was 18. So at the school age, which is up to 16 in England, you know, I was, I was tiny and, uh, I had one of my friends on the show. It was supposed to be my very first episode, but we had some technical issues. Um, so he came on a little bit later, but he was uh, in the interview. He said, James, just so you know, of our entire school, you were the last person that I would, be- I thought would become a firefighter. And then you know, obviously I'm not a big, big lad now, but you know, full career and, you know, all this athleticism that I've, I've been able to do, but it's funny because people talk about, oh, it's so hard being overweight. Well, the skinny kids, it sucks too. Like, you know, you're, you're written off for everything. You're picked last in sports. And when it comes to law enforcement or fire, you got to put the work in to be strong enough. Other people are trying to lose weight. You're trying to gain strength, which arguably, you know, if you look at the physiology is actually harder. Yeah, true. Because, you know, you, as a skinny guy or gal, you can, you can put in a lot of effort and maybe not necessarily see great results and it can be discouraging. I've actually experienced both sides of the coin. You know, I was the skinny guy who had a hard time putting on muscle. And then in my early twenties, I got fat. Like I got, I gained a bunch of weight, um, after graduating the Academy. So I lost a little over 40 pounds of fat, which isn't a huge amount, but I, I can, I understand, I think the challenge to a degree on both sides for sure. Now, what about career aspirations? Your father's obviously dissuading you from the military. Um, what were you dreaming of becoming when you were in high school? You know, I never had any big passions. So I, I kind of landed on lawyer because I liked to debate, I, you know, um, it's, it's a fairly lucrative career, right? It has a good kind of status symbol in your, in most societies. So and my dad liked that idea too. So that, that's the track I was on. But then in college, I just learned like, wow, being a lawyer requires much more than standing in a courtroom and debating with people. You're, you're going to have to do a lot of studying and research and, uh, you know, office hours. And I, I, you know, one day I had an experience where I, you know, I saw some, some deputies in action and that's when I clicked and I was like, maybe I could do that. That sounds really cool. Um, so that was my original track was to become a lawyer, but just, uh, well, I'm definitely glad that didn't pan out for sure. Did elements of that journey factor into your law enforcement? Obviously they're, they're parallel careers, but what I find fascinating, Steve Jobs, for example, did uh, calligraphy in university. He didn't have any particular track. He wasn't pursuing a major. He just took random classes. Fast forward a few years, he creates, you know, the, the Apple Mac, and then is the first person to put fonts on a computer. So his random, com- uh, not community college, his random college course factored in later. Did you see a kind of crossover at any point during your career? Yeah, I mean, I, I was a philosophy major, which is uh, either the number one or the second pre-law major. So people who go to law school usually are literary or philosophy majors. And there's a lot of like debate and whatnot in philosophy, um, but there's a lot of writing so that helped me write reports really well. I mean, my first FTO said, I've never seen anyone write reports so well and so fast, which was really a great compliment, of course, um, when you're struggling and stressed out and worried about 
your job. It's nice to hear that. But so it, it did play a huge role. Writing those 20 page papers um, that were due made um, a three page report that was very simple English, very easy for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, even when you talk to a suspect and you're a detective and you're interviewing, like you can kind of think a few moves ahead and, and maybe help it helps you corner them. And I think that my background with speech and debate and, and that kind of thing helped a lot in, in those circumstances, definitely. So you shift from philosophy to law enforcement. Walk me through your academy and on-ramp experience. Um, well, so my background investigator was also the guy that helped prepare people for an academy. They had a pre-academy and he was so strict and serious and frankly intimidating. He made the academy easy. Um, his name's Scott. I don't, I don't know if I, he wants me to say his whole name. Probably would never hear this, but um, <laughs> uh, he made the academy easy because I came into the academy going, oh my gosh, this is going to be the hardest thing I'll ever do in my life. And I honestly kept waiting for it to get harder. Um, physically I was already in, in, in good shape, good enough shape. Um, honestly, the academics in the academy weren't hard for me. So I don't, I, I, you know, not to try to sound like a big ego or anything, but it, it was easy. Um, you know, it was a six month academy. Um, you know, they yell at you, they have you do assignments, they have you do the physical testing. Um, so that wasn't a big deal. Knock that out. Now, what did the, uh, defensive tactics training that like when you went through school? It was kind of minimal. And honestly, the, the problem I had with it is it wasn't like real world application. Like they had these different moves you do where, okay, like this is how you're going to do a particular wrist lock and Hey, grab these two fingers and twist them up. I never once saw anyone use those tactics in the field ever. Um, there were some things that were good and applicable, like, you know, learning basic ground control and stuff or striking the bags. Uh, but a lot of it was not practical. I, and I'm fairly certain they've revamped it. Like since then, they've taken a more practical approach to tactics. Uh, but it's minimum. I think you could probably talk to most cops across the U.S. and they would tell you that the the emphasis of defensive tactics is, is pretty minimal and that even the ongoing testing for a lot of agencies is like once every two years, uh, which you, you can't really say is good training or, you know, consistent, regular training. Um, so I think a lot of citizens have this preconceived idea that cops are going to be better fighters or like better with defensive tactics than most. And I, I don't, I don't necessarily think so. I think they do. I think from what I've seen is pretty much a minimal job done to prepare people uh, in, in regards to defensive ta tactics and arrest and control. Now I'm no longer with my department. It's been a few years. I saw them improving that and it's probably way better than it was back in 2010 when I went through the Academy. But yeah, I think, I think agencies could do better with that for sure. Well, what's scary is, you know, the the level of wrestling that's out there. Some of these high school and collegiate athletes, you know, the MMA world, jujitsu, you know, and obviously you got the strike in as well. It's a crapshoot. I just saw um, it went around social media and, and a lot of the the martial artists that I follow. Um, it was a fight. It must have been in Europe because one guy was wearing an England football shirt. And I think the other one was wearing a French one. And I mean, these punches were 
so weak every single one missed and you know so there's an example of you might get in a street fight and you know have no <laughs> very little worries at all and you'd be have no problem you know, getting away from it or detaining that person but then again you might come across someone who's a trained athlete and you as a law enforcement officer is entering that conflict with a sidearm strapped to your belt so you know there, there's such a spectrum that i mean i think it's terrifying even the fact that we send cops one to a car that one officer you know, they might be a 280-pound former linebacker or they might be a 90-pound police officer. And they're going to go into that arena. And, it, you know, it might be an arm, might be unarmed, might be a psych patient, might be a hyperglycemic. It might be all the things. The, the fact that there isn't an absolute laser focus on the strength and conditioning, the combatives, and the actual real-world tactical firearms training blows my mind, you know, in some department. But we see a complete parallel in the fire service, too. There are phenomenal departments out there, and there's departments like the last one I worked for that you could have the world's biggest near miss on your doorstep and still nothing changes. It is sad. It's sad. It's shocking. There's a lot of change that needs to be made. Um, but, you know, you're right. Like, one one thing that's that's interesting is that there's kind of negative training in the field in the sense that cops are used to people obeying their orders because 99 times out of 100 or even more, you say, hey, sit down, you know, put your put your hands behind your back or whatever. They're going to do it. And, and what you see in a lot of these cringy videos of cops being unable to control, um, you know, resisting subjects is you see them, you know, stop resisting, stop resisting. They'll say it a hundred times. Get on the ground, get on the ground, get on the ground. And it's like their brain can't adjust to the fact that my verbal commands are no longer working. So I need to go put hands on. So, yeah, I think there's that that element of like negative training. These cops get complacent, um, you know, and and I'm sure this happens in the fire service. You respond to a hundred different incidents that don't require um, either a technical skill or your physical abilities. And then all of a sudden you get that call and it's like, oh, my gosh, I need to do something and I haven't prepared for it. My analogy is like an airline pilot who has forgotten about or neglected to study emergency landing procedures because they've done a thousand normal landings. And all of a sudden, now they have to do an emergency one. And it's like, crap, I didn't study for this. I didn't prepare for this. It's been so long since I looked into this uh, because I'm so used to and complacent with the everyday stuff that tends to go smoothly. You know, so, but I see it all the time as a fitness coach, I get a lot of people reaching out to me for help to lose fat, build muscle. And a lot of it is a, a terrible incident they were involved in. Ted, I got into a foot pursuit. I couldn't keep up or I got into a fight and this 16 year old kid whooped my butt. Um, and then they go, oh my gosh, I need to get fit. I need to lose the fat, build the muscle. Maybe I needed to take some defensive tactics courses, whatever. Um, but sadly, a lot of them wait until it's too late. Well, it extends beyond the uniform too. I was just thinking about this. You know, say you are a deconditioned 40 year old in America, you know, and you, you, you haven't exercised and you haven't watched what you eat. Um, you certainly haven't gone into any kind of you know, martial arts school, or whatever. And then someone bigger than you just simply grabs your kid and runs. Imagine that, that you knew you couldn't catch him, that you couldn't stop them. That yeah. to me terrifies me. And that's without the uniform. Now throw on a uniform where you're not only responsible for your own family, but now the, the community that you serve as well. And more importantly, arguably, the man or woman to your left or your right. So the ownership element is so, so important. And even if 
let's say you know you've kind of got um, burned out and you're not as worried about when you're at work, then refocus on home. When you're not wearing your gear, when you don't have a radio and you get response you know, screaming towards you in a matter of seconds, and now it's your family, your home, your child. And this is what I, I you know, use as the analogy is like, how would you feel if your family died because the responder hadn't trained? Now imagine you're that yeah. responder. Amen to that. I mean, I've seen it. Like, I remember I was at a, a park on a soccer field and it looked like a kid who's maybe two to three years old was running toward the street. And the dad was very significantly overweight is yelling, stop, stop. And you see him like try to get up and try to run. And it's just pathetic. Like his, his three-year-old absolutely outpaced him. And, and for a moment, I'm like, I- I'm going to have to start running. I'm going to go save this kid, this, this guy's kid. Cause he's running for the street. And you know, I'd feel terrible if this kid got hit by a car. And luckily the kid finally stopped and listened or whatever. But it's like, how does a moment like that not tell him, and maybe it did, but tell the dad, oh my gosh, I am not being a good dad. I'm not being a good dad. Because to me, a good dad is somebody who is capable of protecting their kids for at least normal stuff. I get it. You get punched in the face by some MMA professional and they out of nowhere and they steal your kid. I mean, you know, there's not much you could have done to prepare for that. But like, can you prepare to keep up with your child if they're running? Can you prepare to reasonably defend yourself against the average person? You know, um, and, and I think a lot of it, too, is people have inflated egos. Maybe they remember what they used to be able to do, but now they've gotten more out of shape and they haven't been tested in years or, or they just have overconfidence. Oh, you know, they play out the perfect scenario in their head. Here's what I would do. And they, they think they could handle it perfectly until that moment teaches them otherwise. Yeah. I love that phrase. I think it's the SEALs that use it a lot. You know, you don't rise to the level of expectations, you fall to the level of training. And it's so true. You know, the whole hold me yeah. back, I just see red. <laughs> We've seen those guys on yeah. YouTube, yeah. and they don't do very well. So, uh, yeah. Well, you spoke about being slim when you were smaller and then having to lose weight after you graduated the academy. Walk me through that weight gain. And then what was that pivotal change that got you to realize that you needed to take action? Yep. So, you know, I was still a weightlifter and, and my focus is like, let's get big and strong. And there's a couple guys that I was working with in the jail. So we started in custody who were big, strong dudes and putting away a lot of food. So I'm like, okay, that's the way to do it. You know, I want to get big and strong. And, um, it eventually turned into a, a bad habit, you know, and, and I think anyone who ends up overweight usually didn't expect to get there. And they might have this moment where they're like, I didn't realize how fat I've gotten. And I knew I was gaining some fat, but eh, I, you know, you ignore it. You brush it to the side, whatever. I'm still fine. I still got it. Um, so a couple of things happened. Like, you know, I'm, I'm eating a lot of food, eating food that's not that good for me. I'm snacking here and there. And even though I was lifting weights, you know, and, and I was still pretty strong, which also gave me a false sense of confidence. Hey, I'm still strong. You know, hey, a um, couple of wake up calls. I remember I responded to a fight in the jail. Another deputy was in a fight and just getting there, I was winded and somebody made a content uh, comment. Like, were you even, were you even involved in the fight? Like you're breathing so hard. And I was like, Oh my goodness. That was one thing. Another one is I saw a video of me running and I looked silly running. Like it just did not look athletic. And I was like, Oh, and then the final straw, I went to the doctors and you know, they're like, yeah, your blood pressure is out of control. Here's your meds here's your prescription. 
And they're like, don't worry, you know, it's genetic. You said, you said your mother and in, in, in that side of the family has blood pressure issues. It's just genetic. I've seen doctors say this a million times. But I also took a look at myself in that moment. I'm like, I am 240 pounds. I have a belly. I have, I have love handles. And I'm like, let me try to do this the right way. So I ended up um, through a few steps, you know, losing that fat. And, you know, lo and behold, my blood pressure was good again. Um, you know, I can move again. I felt good. And I learned a better way to approach building muscle and, and not get fat in the process. But uh, yeah, that's, you know, one thing led to another. And one day I was overweight and I just decided in that moment I needed to change. What was the training philosophy that you had? Was it more of a powerlifting side then if you put on the weight? Because I mean, usually bodybuilders, they have the kind of off season weight gain, but then they slim down for competition. But the powerlifting community tends to be a little heavier because they're looking just for that strength. Yeah, it was definitely very powerlifting focused, which is great, but unnecessary fat gain is not great and never a good thing. Um, so, and I, I would kind of engage in periodic cuts when I saw a picture of myself that I didn't like, or I would try to lose some weight, but I was approaching it like bodybuilders would at the time. And, you know, like chicken and broccoli and turkey and sweet potato and eat every two hours. Uh, and this is actually what led to me starting the fit responder program is that I had a coach who was telling me, all right, you know, eat, eat your turkey and asparagus and your you know, your six almonds and these, it was kind of in a really rigid schedule, work out six days a week for an hour and a half to two hours. And I was having trouble keeping up with it, but I, you know, I was determined, Hey, I, I, I can be a fit guy. I can do this. But I remember I had a, uh, an incident where I was on a traffic collision for like six hours directing traffic. And I, I told my coach, it's like, I missed two of the meals and I'm dang exhausted. Like I, if I can take the day off from the gym today, that'd be appreciated. And he said, oh, you must not want this bad enough. And uh, yeah, I'm sure his intent was to motivate me, but I felt pretty discouraged. Like, what What did this guy want me to do? Say, so I'm not gonna stop, I'm gonna stop directing traffic now. I need to go eat my meal that's timed every two hours. Um, and in that moment, I'm like, I could probably do this better, but it didn't come till a little bit later that I decided I wanted to actually coach people. Um, but that was a big inspiration for me in starting Fit Responders. I realized like, a good coach is also someone who understands the actual challenges their client is dealing with. And rather than giving their client a cookie cutter approach, might give them things that are actually doable, given their life, given their preferences, given their schedule and all that. And it might take somebody with that understanding, with that background. So that's kind of what it, that was a big moment that inspired Fit Responder. It seems like some of the more extreme versions of dieting, they've literally sucked all the fun out of cooking and food and eating. So where, you know, where I kind of find the middle ground is yeah, at times you obviously have got to got to start reeling in certain elements, macros, et cetera. But if it becomes the the point where you're just staring at 12 Tupperwares with the same shit and that's all you're going to eat for, you know, three days straight, then you got to ask yourself, well, if I... If I'm this miserable eating, then what is that point? If I'm literally going to train for Mr. Olympia, I get that kind of fanaticism, but I'm a firefighter. You know, do I need to be all the way on that extreme? The same way as even lifting. Do I need to 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 constantly figure out what my one rep is, or do I need to be able to pull five reps with great form at 80% of what I can so I can foster strength and longevity? Yep, 100%. Agree with that. 
So you mentioned about you got to a point where you really kind of got into the coaching world. What, what again, kind of led you onto that path? Sure thing. So like I met my wife and so my girlfriend at the time and she saw me prepping, you know, a dozen Tupperware with, with chicken and rice. And she goes, you know, you could do this easier, right? Like she was in great shape. She had already done a fitness show. Um, she's also a personal trainer and, you know, she introduced me to how she approaches food. Definitely imperfect, you know, like uh, kind of budgeting, so to speak for the date night and for deviations and also just making food more fun that, that isn't bad for you, you know, different ways to make burritos and tacos and lasagna that is to your palate, really enjoyable, still kind of, um, hits that, that button that we need to enjoy our food. Right. I mean, there's it's food is fuel, but it's also a little bit of recreation too. Um, so she just taught me kind of new ways to go about it. And that was really eye opening for me. It definitely helped me lose the weight I was looking to lose. And we started sharing these methods with people at work and people were getting great results and they loved that. And, and we're like, we're changing lives. And that was when I was like, why don't we just coach people officially? Let's, let's get clients and coach them. Um, she was pretty skeptical at first. She's like, no one's going to want, we're not professional bodybuilders. No one's going to want us as coaches. Come on. But I put it out there. I said, Hey, you know, Emily and I, we were, we're a fit couple and we, we know what it's like to be a first responder. Let's coach you. Let's help you. So the results and the word spread really fast. Um, and the, the, the attention to us like exploded. We had more clients than we knew what to do with after a point. Um, and, and fitness is great because when you get people fit, they're like a walking billboard. Hey, John, you look so good. How did you do that? Oh, we've got to talk to Ted and Emily. So that, that was really the beginnings of Fit Responder. What were you seeing within your department as far as the fitness standards and the, the kind of, uh, uh, what's the right word? Culture, the fitness culture within that department as well. I think it's a lot like most departments in America. Like it, there's this general understanding that of course we should be fit. And there's, you know, you'll see a poster in the building somewhere that says, you know, you gave up the right to be out of shape when you put on the badge. And, you, and there, there is a little bit of that culture, but there's next to no incentive. Uh, I mean, other than the really important ones, like not dying and, and doing your job, and but there's no other external incentives to keep people fit. Um, and the problem with departments and agencies in America is they find themselves in this battle where if they demand somebody to be fit, they're often met with litigation. Um, like, oh, you're discriminating against me because I'm overweight, you know, or, or um, you know, oh, oh, so you're going to force me to work out? Well, I got hurt. So I want you to cover that because you're forcing me to work out. You, I, I need workers comp. So a lot of agencies know they need their people to be fit and healthy, but they just don't know how to get their people to do it. Um, and then, then you do have both ends of the spectrum. You have fit, fit first responders who recognize the importance and take action. And you have the other end of the spectrum where you got people who are literally morbidly obese, walking around in uniform on the front lines, expected to be able to perform and, and do their, their, their physical demands of, of the job when intense situations arise and they're incapable of doing it. And you have everyone in between. Um, but, but if you look at, especially in the U S and I don't know what it's like over there in the UK, but like first responders are some of the most obese groups of professions in America. You look at the statistics and they end up damn near the top of the list, if not top of the list. And that's 
so sad and ironic. I mean, first responders ought to be some of the fittest people. Like it is in your job description that you may need to do things that require your physical abilities, jump walls, run, climb flights of stairs, carry out victims, carry out your partners, fight, um, you know, bust through doors, uh, endurance, strength, all of these things. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'll tell you that the, I guess to kind of wrap that up, like the internal culture was this kind of understanding that we ought to be fit in the academy. They preached it, get fit. They enforced it in the academy. But then after the academy, you, you kind of just left, everyone's left to their own devices. I found that crazy as well. And, and it's someone made an interesting point. When you got the right culture, you don't need fitness standards. And I agree. Like Anaheim, when I worked out there, um, the first 12 months of probation, the academy and then probation was was hard, like really, really hard. And if you didn't make the cut, they let you go. They literally had a 25% attrition rate of every class, at least when I was there. Um, and so after that year, you know, there was just this culture of excellence, not saying that I achieved excellence, but the pursuit of excellence. And, you know, we would work out all the time. We'd play sports. We'd, you know, we'd run at the track. We'd do all the things because that's just what you do. But then, you, you know, I ended up changing to other departments and seeing, you know, like you're talking about the other side. Um, and it maddens me because if you ask the SEALs, the Green Berets, the PJs, the SAS, if someone doesn't cut it, they're out. They have standards and they have, you know, not so much a fitness test, but an overall performance level that they've got to maintain. You ask the ocean lifeguards of the world. And I was a lifeguard in open water, not not the oceans, but lakes. You know, if I fail my swim test, I cease to become a lifeguard. I just don't understand how in police and fire, I mean, it should be EMS as well, how we allowed it to, you know, unions, administrative, whatever it was, the, the combination to resist an annual fitness standard. Because if in, in Florida, where I went to fire school, we call it minimum standards. So they label it that this is the absolute shittest you should ever be. And you're asked to climb stairs and dummies and you know, breach doors and all the things. So they've set the bar. No one can say, oh, it's not fair. That was your fucking front door. So it blows my mind that then you're like, oh, it's not fair to test me. I mean, I just, I, I'm still waiting for someone to give me a good answer. How the fuck, especially when we have unions that beat their chest saying that they're just the strongest union in the country and we can't even set a fucking fitness standard for a profession that depends on our fitness. It does blow my mind as well. And there, there, I know there's ways to reform it because there are departments, especially the troopers, uh, a lot of trooper departments, which are highway patrols, have standards. I mean, I've had clients who, who come to me to, to help because they go, I know I'm not going to pass the test this year unless I lose some weight and my, I prepare better for the physical demands and they, they can lose their job. So there are some agencies that have the standards that hold people to the standards and obviously are able to uh, avoid any of the, the worry about unions or litigation. But, um, you know, I remember talking to a guy who's pretty high up in my department. And, and when I brought these things up, he immediately was like, yeah, that's a dead end. He goes, I've, I've tried everything. There's no way. And I just I don't believe it yet. I don't believe it. I think he just, I, I know he believed what he was saying. He, he probably felt like he tried a bunch of different things and there's just, there's no way, but I think it's just going to take some really strong people who are in the management, who are in the leadership positions to put their foot down and, and maybe deal with some backlash, maybe deal initially with some litigation, 
with some problems and until they can solidify it. Maybe it maybe it's new contracts moving forward with new um, hirees to say you you must abide by these. It's in your contract that you need to be fit, and we're going to hold you to standards. Fine, you know, but I, I yeah, there's a ton of room for improvement. And you're right, it, it blows my mind. It's sad. Um, and it's freaking pathetic and embarrassing too. I mean, I can't, I cannot put myself in the shoes of someone who's 50 plus pounds overweight, can't pass a physical test. Oh, it's my department's fault. Cause they won't, you know, do X, Y, Z and you're being unfair. You're discriminating. No, like open your eyes. You are the problem. Well, I've, I've been very fair to really, you know, over and over and over and over and over again, bring great, great minds to come on and talk about, especially in the fire service, our work week, which absolutely sets us up for failure. And you look at law enforcement, you know, you've got these long hours, you know, in your your profession, the shifts swinging from nights and days, you're in a car, you know, you've got the belt, now you've got postural issues. So we are set up for failure, a lot of us. So it's not just on the responder, it is on, you know, the the employer as well. But again, when you are expected to do a certain amount of things at the front door and then you have the audacity to say, oh, it's not fair. No one, you know, especially the one I hate is, oh, they're trying to take our jobs. Like, I don't get me wrong. If they said, right, starting tomorrow, if you're not fit, you're out. Of course, that's completely unfair. You'd have to introduce an on-ramp system where over a series of two or three years, everyone has to get to that standard again because you've allowed them to devolve up to that point. But it all goes back again to what would you, how would you feel if your family died? Because that obese firefighter tapped out three floors up or that bodybuilder firefighter tapped out because all he focused on is to paint himself orange and not actually being able to do the job properly. So this is the thing. We've got to remind ourselves that not only to our family first, but the people that we serve we swore an oath to be able to do the thing. And as you said, I'm not going to be able to beat an MMA fighter, but I hopefully will be able to hold my own with the average Joe. I'm not going to be the fastest person up, you know, Grenfell Tower. I'm not going to be able to carry the most weight, but I'm going to make myself the best version of James Gearing in that uniform to be able to do it. So it's not about taking jobs. I mean, to defending someone who can't do a job as a firefighter is trying to persuade a school bus company to allow the blind guy to drive. You know, if you can't do the job, you can't fucking do the job. Yep, I'm with you 100%. Right, and and I've said that too. Like, I don't need you to be a professional athlete, you know, like, but will you be able to get into an incident that requires your physical fitness and say, you know, I reasonably prepared for this, right? It would be like, you know, you respond to an active shooter and they they have, you know, a tank. Like, okay, okay, well... I can't beat them, but I, I still came reasonably prepared. You know, that you could you could absolutely get involved in something that virtually nobody could overcome. But my goodness, like if if you like just look at the normal kind of scenarios that you might be involved in. You might have to run up four flights of stairs to get to a victim. Could you do it? And don't think, yeah, I could do that. Well, when's the last time you tested yourself? Really? You know, a lot of there's there was this alarming statistic. I want to say it was like 90% of men who are over the age of 35 will never sprint again. Did you hear this, James? Did you ever hear that statistic? No, I didn't. Yeah, and I want to say it was 90, but it was a staggering amount of people. And you know, how many of those guys at the age of 40 would say, Oh, I could handle it if whatever incident occurred that required me to and it's like, well, you you haven't sprinted in five years. <laughs> so yeah, I mean. 
you know, I think it makes absolute sense that first responders, whether you're fire or cops, like you need to have a reasonable standard of fitness for yourself. Like you ought to be able to run. You probably should be able to hop a four foot wall. You probably should be able to run up four flights of stairs and not be absolutely winded or you're useless now. Um, so like test yourself, get into the damn gym, work out. Um, because you're right. Like you, you don't want to be that guy or girl that goes, man, like <clears throat> I'm not the first responder I would want coming to my aid or my family's aid. You know, don't wait till then we take care of it now. There's a pushback against the term tactical athlete. And I was at a, the Orlando fire conference. Once I asked one of the Denver chiefs, um, how, how many stories do you expect your firefighters to be able to climb? And he said, to the top of the tallest building we've got. And I, that was a mic drop moment to me. That's exactly what I was hoping he was going to say. Where I just finished working next to my station, and this is a, you know, a department where a lot of them said, oh, we'll just get the elevator if we have an issue. There was a 28-story uh, hotel tower. And I, we would do a, a thing where you simulate, um, then when I say we, like I would organize this. It wasn't a department thing at all where we'd simulate a high rise, um, exercise. And so you'd have your bunker gear on your pack, but then you'd have spare air bottles. Cause when you climb that high, there's no one to turn around to and just get you more, everything you, you need, you got to take up with you, uh, a section of hose and a, and a forced entry tool. So you're not pack muling it. You're just the bare minimum of everyone. So that when you get up there, you've got the resources to work. And then it was 28 story climb. Now, when we did that, so I, I weighed myself without my gear and then with all this, and it was 100 pounds of gear on my skinny ass, you know, 168-pound frame at the time. No one gives a shit how fit I am, how old I am, what color I am, who I sleep with. They just want to make sure that I can get to the top and get their children. So this is the thing when there's pushback against tactical athlete, and it's the complacency that you were talking about. 90% of the calls you run on may, may take minimal physical exertion. But when someone starts shooting from the, you know a, a hotel in Las Vegas, when bombs go off in London, you know when when the tower in in Grenfell Tower is uh, ablaze in in London, and you have to make you know make entry or climb numerous amounts of stairs or drag people out, that is what you're training for. You're not training for the everyday nonchalant calls. You're training for the worst case. And like you said, you're not expected to be Superman but you're expected to at least perform at the highest level that you physically can. Amen to that. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I think that you, you can reasonably be said that if you're entering the first responder profession and applying for a position that's going to require and potentially and realistically require a, a high level of fitness, you are, when you swear that oath, you ought to also be swearing an oath that you're going to stay fit and you will do what it takes or freaking resign. Like, get out of there. Stop being a liability to yourself and others for sure. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the, the kind of training philosophy that you have then. I, I do a class every week for free here in Ocala. Um, and I've been in CrossFit now for like 16 years, I've kind of moved away a little bit and focusing on more kind of maces, kettlebells, with the Wolf Brigade programming now, which I'm really enjoying. But when it comes to the missing piece from the CrossFit space, I've always loved sleds, sandbags, kettlebell carries, because it's the kind of real world application, especially for the fire service. We're pushing, pulling, climbing, dragging. So talk to me about the kind of principles and philosophies that you like to use when you're coaching. 
I love that. Yeah. Love the sled. Love those like practical pieces of equipment. <clears throat> what I found with people, when it, with most people I'm coaching have a problem with their habits, right? And, and they're, they have a problem staying consistent. So what a lot of people do is they inject themselves into some kind of program or style of coaching that they can keep up with for a period of time as they ride that motivation wave, but then fall out, you know, fall back in old habits. So I realized as a coach, what's important really to help people see long-term success is giving them very achievable small steps um, to accomplish day by day. And, you know, eventually ramping them up to the person who's doing a strenuous workout with different pieces of equipment and challenging them. But it's it, it really needs to be kind of a, a step-by-step simple process. So yeah, when I coach, it's kind of an individual basis. Like, let's start with where you're at now. Are you already a, a working out pretty consistently and you know your way around the gym? Your process is going to look a lot different than the person who I also am coaching who really just struggles not overeating, you know, really struggles just avoiding snacking, you know, and really struggles just getting in the gym once or twice a week, giving them uh, steps that are achievable and doable given their mindset as it is. You know what I mean? Like coaching a program for someone should not feel like pounding a square peg into a round hole. Um, so yes, ultimately, if somebody has kind of graduated to like that achiever status, I would say, yeah, we're going to be working with them on a higher level. Like let's work with equipment that's really practical. Let's challenge you. Let's like push the boundaries. Um, but I guess like to zoom out, my perspective on coaching, as I said, is very like on an individual basis. Um, and that's why I think like kind of custom one-on-one coaching makes sense is, you know, for some people, the idea of counting calories just sounds incredibly difficult and too time consuming, whatever. That's fine. So for that person, I might say like, what are foods you like? You know, let's just work on portions right now. Let's avoid, uh, uh let's kind of preset parameters on the number of snacks you eat per day, simple stuff, you know, um, just to get that momentum rolling, give them confidence, allow them to see some progress um, with with a process that's doable. Does that make sense? No, it does completely. And it's another interesting uh, observation I've made. I'm curious to get this. This is more really within the department. So I was able to kind of be one of the voices in the wellness program at the last place I worked and we the first finally got the first class through a PT program, first orientation class, you know, new hire class. They weren't even doing PT with them before. Um, but what I realized was, especially in, in our guys in a department that aren't, you know, off their own back coming to a gym, there's a lot of fear, a lot of fear of looking stupid, a lot of fear of other people realizing they're not as fit, strong, fast as they thought they were. And again, I, I commend anyone who then steps up regardless of that. But coming from the CrossFit space where there's snatches and, you know, a lot of kind of more complex movements, the sandbags, the sleds, you know, the carries, it was like, all you got to do is pick that up and walk over there. And they're like, oh, okay. And so you reduce that fear, that anxiety of looking stupid because you've made it a real world task. Conversely, you know, if I gave someone a snatch and their mobility is terrible and they can't even squat down with the bar over their head, I'm really adding more to their their desire not to work out than building confidence. Exactly right. Yeah, because even though they may fake it and go through the motions, in that moment, they're thinking, 
man, this is too hard. This is not for me. I'm not a fit person. I'm not made for this. I don't like this. I'll never be fit, right? But you give them steps that are achievable and simple enough and it starts, it allows them to start building that confidence. Like, okay, okay, I can eat better. I'm doing it or I, I can work out. I just got it done and I'm sore. Okay, you know, even though maybe to me, that's a pretty elementary workout, super simple, like super basic, but it's allowing them to feel that it is achievable, it's doable, and they see the results from it. And then they can begin to ride that momentum wave and and be more eager to try new things and challenge themselves. That was one of the things I really liked about CrossFit. You know, when you're, let's say you are in a bodybuilding style gym, you know, a regular globo gym, if they, the term they like to use. And, you know, you, you put the pin down, you know, you add a little bit more weight on your pec deck, not really a feeling of achievement. But what I loved about the kind of play element of CrossFit, the rope climbs, the pegboard, the handstand walks, was that, you know, as a 40-year-old dude and you do a handstand, you're like, this is, this is brilliant. And there's a sense of achievement, a sense of, of short-term goals. And I think that's important because if we just go to the gym and do the same movements, three sets of whatever, there's never really you know, a sense of accomplishment. But when there are some of these tasks woven in, because I mean, even the sandbags, you go up a sandbag, okay, great, but it's not a huge thing. But you climb a rope for the first time when you couldn't even as a child, that is a huge accomplishment. So I love kind of weaving in some of those those kind of play elements that are, you know, are physical as well so that someone has a real sense of, wow, I'm doing something I couldn't do before. Yeah, that's great. And something we do inside the Fit Responder program in our app, when people are consistent with their workouts, they get like these little badges, these little achievements. If they hit a PR in the gym, you know, they they do more or, or you know, more weight or more sets, whatever, they get a badge for that and then we'll commend them on it. So there's like a community aspect to it as well. So there's, there's also another sense of encouragement, like, man, I got 10 workouts in a row done, you know, and I hit a new personal best. Um, so yeah, I found that that's something like our clients look forward to keeps them engaged, um, kind of similar to what you were talking about with CrossFit. Now, this is kind of a, a little bit more of a bizarre question, but as a martial artist and someone who's, you know, on the slimmer side, I've been trying to figure out that happy medium between the cardio element and my motor's always been good, but also the strength because the less strong I am, the more effort it has for me to create strength against a bigger opponent my aerobic side is is kind of coping with it, but then if I built more strength, does that in turn improve my you know my capacity? So talk to me about that, especially in, in law enforcement. You obviously you you need you need the uh, muscular endurance, but at times improving overall strength is an asset too. Definitely, and I think what can really help people is workout efficiency. So like you know. I, I, there was a time where I was preparing for a SWAT tryout um, and I do not like running. I don't enjoy it, but I knew that running four plus miles was a requirement of this tryout. So what I did in my workouts is decreased the rest periods and increased my reps and decreased the weight um, so that like I was able to get some cardio benefits from my weightlifting. Um, and lo and behold, with minimum running to prepare for this tryout, I did quite well. And um, so that's that's a feature I think people ought to consider is that you often can kill two birds with one stone. Um, but 
I mean, frankly, it's very possible to have decent endurance and be strong as heck. You know, I've, I've done it. Um, but yeah, if your sole focus is one or the other, you will end up neglecting, you know, the other side of the spectrum. I mean, marathon runners are typically very thin and probably not strong. And conversely, you have competitive powerlifters probably couldn't run a mile to save their life. So, you know, I think as a tactical athlete, as you said, or as a first responder, you ought to be decent in both. You ought to have decent endurance. You ought to have decent mobility, decent strength, um, but not necessarily a specialist in one or the other. As you progress through your own training from, as you said, carrying too much weight to where you were, um, was there a moment where you started to see that physicality and or performance really factor into success? Um, it seems like a, a lot of the very... Um, very fit, very well trained when it came to, you know, defensive tactics officers I've had on here report a loss, a lot less hands on because these people are looking at them going, yeah, I'm not even going to try and mess with that guy. Um, so talk to me about as you got fitter and stronger, if you noticed any, either any kind of um, a de-escalation through physicality and or the actual calls where your strength helped. Oh my gosh. So many. And, and, I need to say this with, with with the preface that I'm not trying to brag here. I really am not. But so many times in my career, looking obviously fit helped and being fit helped literally in application. So, I mean, there's times where, you know, like some guy was getting agitated and, you know, I'm telling him what to do. And he's like, look, I, I'm not going to mess with you. Clearly, you could kick my ass. He has no idea how proficient I am in martial arts or whatever, but he made an assumption like this guy looks built. He doesn't look like a, a big fat slob um, and he looks like he's got some muscle and, he, you know, he probably saw the veins coming down my forearm and he's like, all right, this guy probably could beat me up. He made that assumption. Um, I remember there was another incident where there was a, uh, a guy who would not get in the back of the cruiser. He had his hands, his hands were already handcuffed behind his back. And a couple of my partners were trying to convince him to get in. Come on, like, just get in. We don't want to fight you. You're already cuffed. Just get in the car. And I ended up just walking up. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, I see you sent the bruiser. I'll get in the car now. And he just got in the car. I don't know what he assumed, thought I was going to kick his ass. But obviously, my physical presence did something. Um, I used to get comments like that all the time. You know, just some comments about how I looked or that I was obviously muscular um, I saw definitely practical benefits. I did get in fights as a cop. I got in foot pursuits. I had to kick indoors. I did stuff like that. No question, my physical abilities helped in those moments. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I loved it. And I, I, I wanted a reputation that I was capable. I wanted my partners to know that, oh, if Ted's backing me up, like, we're good. And there was one incident where I got into a fight um, and ended up knocking the guy out and he ended up going to the hospital. And some somebody else in the department made a comment saying that, like, well, the guy's lucky. Oh, he fought Stern. Like, that guy's lucky he didn't end up in a body bag. And I just loved that that was my reputation. A lot to do with me being, you know, fit, strong, having that kind of being known as the fit guy. Um, I love that. And and just the idea of anyone, whether it's a victim or a, or a suspect or my partners, the idea of someone looking at me going, huh. Oh, Ted, Ted would be way too fat to help me out. Or, you know, I don't have any confidence that Ted could, could help me. 
that this is in awful, just embarrassing. So like just the idea of that is just, uh, no, I could not even allow that to ever be a possibility. So yeah, long story short, without trying to brag, 100%, I saw my fitness benefit me numerous times throughout my career. Beautiful. Well, we talked about the training side. What about rest and recovery? Um, I was kind of totally naive, and it was Jeff Nichols, one of the SEAL team um, strength and conditioning coaches. Yeah, he's, he was both. Um, that really opened my eyes. You know, I used to go off shift and go to the gym and, you know, do Murph or whatever was the the uh, workout of the day because I would sweat out my stress, air quotes. And then he kind of made me realize, all right, James, you know, you're already in the red and then you go to the gym and you do a workout that's going to put you more in the red. Where is the sense in that? And I'm like, fuck, you're right. So understanding, you know, the days to, to hit it hard, the, um, you know, the deload days, um, you know, the, the sleep versus a day in the gym. When you have a lot of people that you coach now that do work shift work, you know, what are, what are the nuances between some of these professions that you've seen since you've been coaching? Yeah, right. And that's something I've had to learn over time is to not overtrain and to really value and take advantage of my opportunities to recover um, as, a, as a way to progress. Because I remember my dad telling me, hey, Arnold worked out eight hours a day, you know, just try harder. And I've seen influencers online say there's no such thing as overtraining, you know, just just go. So on the one hand, obviously, overtraining exists and and we ought to give ourselves a uh, a good chance to recover because muscle uh, is is built during the recovery process um <clears throat> and there's obvious benefits to not allowing ourselves to recover i mean there's there's a point of diminishing returns right like with effort and time if it was a graph you would see you know accelerating benefits and then after enough time and effort those benefits tend to decrease and then eventually you'll have uh, the other side where you'll be hurting yourself, literally, if you work out too much and don't recover enough and you don't sleep enough. Um, one thing I'll say though, is I think we're not the best um, subjective judges of how much recovery we need. Because on the one hand, you could be like me and ignore a lot of signs and symptoms that I ought to be taking it easier on myself, but well, hey, I'm a badass, so I'm gonna keep pushing. That's one end of the spectrum. But I would say more often than not, people are on the other end of the spectrum. I ought to take a break. Oh, I'm sore, so I'm not going to work out. Or I'm kind of tired, so I ought to just sit on the couch. So I think for most of us, especially if you're out of shape, you are way more likely to give yourself more excuses to not work out and to not, you know, because um, I've just I've seen this from working with out of shape people for a long time. Hey, you know, I had a I had a tough day on patrol. You know, we walked for like an hour, so I'm gonna I'm not gonna do my leg workout today. Wait, you walked for an hour, and you think that was your leg workout? What are you What are you talking about? You know, so I think we ought. If you're out of shape and you're listening to this, you ought to realize that you're way more likely to be giving yourself excuses to rest when you don't need it um, than than conversely. But you know, at the same time, like if you're in legit pain or your soreness is pretty much debilitating. Um, then it's, those are good signs and symptoms you do need to recover. Um, so yeah, it's like, where do you draw that line? Right. I've had clients who go, man, I only slept five hours last night. Should I work out? You got to zoom out. Have you, how many workouts have you gotten in this week? You know, um, do you have an opportunity to rest more tomorrow night? You know, um, do you really feel like you're dragging ass? Like, like it's, you're just gonna have a useless workout or can you get something done? Can you work out for 30 minutes, 20, right? So 
there is a lot of gray area within that. But um, yeah, I mean, I think one thing I could just say is get a good coach who understands the need for recovery and understands your lifestyle. Um, fit responder could do that, by the way, wink, wink, but that can help you kind of guide you and help you understand when you do need that recovery and, and when it's time to say, no, it's, it's time to work, even though I'm tired. I know a lot of the wearables, you know, they'll tout things that they claim to do that they just don't. And I've had, you know, people from the tech industry and people, you know, neuroscientists on here that are like, no, for example, your watch cannot tell you what phase of sleep you were in at a certain time. They can tell you if you didn't move, but they can't tell you if you're in, you know, deep sleep or whatever. That's, that's basically fake news. However, one of the places that they're really good at, which ties into this conversation is HRV. So, you know, if you have this completely linear space between your heartbeat, that's a sympathetic response. So if you get off a 24 as a firefighter and your HRV is, I, I don't know if the metric is high or how they measure it, but you, you clearly are in a high sympathetic stress state, that's not the day to do MRF. But conversely, it might be a great day to do a, a gentle row or go for a swim or, or ruck or so still move, still exercise. But maybe don't do your max lifts. Do you know, like you said, higher higher rep, you know, lower weight. Um, but then when it's the opposite, when you've got this variability, now you're in that that rested parasympathetic state. Now is a great time for you to do the, the ones that are really going to test your you know neuromuscular system and and challenge your body a little bit more. So that's one of the things that I think the HRV element of wearables is really giving responders an insight into how am I doing? Of course, how you feel is part of it. But physiologically, if you're still like dripping with cortisol may not be the best time to do, you know, your, your full marathon that day trying to break the record. Yeah. Yeah. A couple things to say there. Like, I think that's interesting how technology is evolving in that realm. And I think we will get way better insights into our biology, physiology, and, and really how to treat ourselves based on that feedback. Um, but yeah, I mean, another thing to say is that I, I, I think that uh, a lot of a lot of us are gonna get pretty reliable biofeedback from ourselves if we push it too hard. So if you do lean, on, lean toward that end of the spectrum of I'm just gonna push it when I don't feel like it, first of all, I like that because it's gonna build a, a mindset that's great. It's gonna build character that I will do hard work even if I don't feel like doing it. I love that aspect of just doing it even when you don't feel like it. But, you know, through my own experience, through working with clients, like if you ignore obvious pain and your body is sending a signal from whatever part of your body, like we are in pain, stop, like probably listen to that, you know. Um, but also know that if you are stressed out, that working out is proven to be very therapeutic. Exercise is, could actually do great things for you, you know. Don't see that, oh, I had a stressful day, so I, the right coping mechanism is for me to eat a bunch of food and sit in front of the TV. That's actually not a good outlet, you know? So recognize that actually pushing yourself to get in a workout when you don't feel like it not only builds that character, but is a proven means to uh, improve your mood and, and alleviate stress, right, and, and recover. So, uh, yeah, a couple points to make there. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just understanding intensity. Well, you know, it's, it's not it's not a lesser workout if your intensity is low you need undulation you need highs and lows so you know if you're moving like you said you got 
off shift and you made yourself go for a bike ride or whatever it is, you will absolutely feel better. But I can say having come off shift, you know, you then go into a CrossFit gym and it's a high intensity workout that involves snatches and other highly technical elements. You're going to leave more pissed off than when you went in. So understanding that kind of spectrum of intensities, I think is important sitting down doing nothing unless you're absolutely crashing is probably not the best thing, but what can you do where you're moving? The blood is pumping, you know, you're, you're breathing hard, you're getting daylight on your face, but you're not crushing your soul. Yeah. And I think it's also giving yourself some grace in that learning that balance takes time. I'm still figuring it out. It takes time. So like, know that there will be times where you might go, yeah, I'm going to get after it. I'm going to do this workout and go, man, I feel like crap. And I hurt myself. I mean, it happens. There's risk, right? I mean, there's risk involved in fitness and whatever else. But I think if you generally have good intentions, especially if you have a good good coach and you lean more toward getting the work done when you don't feel like it more than the other end of the spectrum, you're going to end up all right. You're going to end up just fine. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to the app because I want to be mindful of your time. But just before we do, I ended up transitioning out and doing this full time, which was a real leap of faith. Obviously, you're giving up the so-called quote unquote stable job, you know, with benefits and pensions and stuff. But at that crossroads in my life, this was actually doing the greater good. So I, I took that jump. Talk to me about what made you decide to go all in with Fit Responder and leave your law enforcement profession. Yeah, I mean, I can resonate with what you just said. It's like the greater good. And um, I just saw there was a huge need for it. We were obviously good at it. Um, it was already a stable source of income for me. Um, and I had a choice. I had to go, well, do I want to do it half and half, like keep my career and just keep a small number of clients and keep Fit Responder small um, uh, or give up Fit Responder? That was not an option in my mind and focus on the career. Um, or go all in, go all in with Fit Responder and quit my career. And I had just promoted. I loved my job. I had, a, I think I had a good reputation on the department. I worked a lot of different assignments. Um, but I think when you're obsessed, you know, it, it literally was a calling for me. I knew I had to do it. Like I just had to. It was scary, right? Because you do give up the pension and everything you invested in. But I just knew I had to do it. And I knew also that 10 years, 20 years from now, if I didn't do it, I would always wonder, what if? What if I had just gone all in with Fit Responder? What could I have done with it? You know, um, so I knew I just had to do it. It was definitely scary, but absolutely no regrets here. Like, uh, as you said, like, it's just a calling. I, I, I've helped way more people as a fitness coach than I could have ever helped as a cop, for sure. I've had, I have clients saying all the time, Ted, I'm no longer on medications. I feel great. Or I got into a foot pursuit and I was successful or we had a raging fire that I responded to. And for the first time, I, I had no fear of tapping out or, you know, using all my tank. Like, uh, and, and then the ripple effect of that, the citizens are able to help, you know, them, not only themselves, but just the partners and the victims and, and, and patients that they're working with. And there's a huge need for it, obviously, with first responders. So, yeah, that's, that's how I, I jumped um, back in 2021. That was when I officially quit my job as a cop and went all in. Um, actually, funny story, I got hurt at work. Um, I snapped my ankle and my ankle swelled so badly, I could no longer work light duty. I was still trying to work behind a desk despite the injury. And my doctor said, you're going to need at least two weeks where your foot is like totally elevated for most of the day. We got to get this swelling down. 
And it was during that time I really focused on fit responder. I was like, well, I'm laying on the couch. I'll, I'll coach people, I'll talk to more people. And that's when I saw, I saw real in real time how I was getting a return on my investment of effort and time. And I'm like, what if I did this full time? And that was really when I was like, I could, I could do this. So, Well, it's so good to hear. I mean, there's people out there that are wondering the same thing, you know, and, and we're, we're groomed to say, oh, you stay 25 years because that's when you get your pension. Well, a pension, you know, deadline is not the burning desire in the profession. And I adore the job till the end, but I realized that doing this was a, a force multiplier. If you help a bunch of firefighters and police officers, then how many people do they in turn end up, you know, helping? So it's it's a beautiful, beautiful kind of amplification of your experience plus your new skill set. So for people listening, where can they find Fit Responder online, apps, etc.? Yeah, for sure. So easiest thing would probably be fitresponder.com, F-I-T, responder, R-E-S-P-O-N-D-E-R.com. Um, you get a little introduction to our program and you can apply right there. Um, otherwise, a lot of people find me through social media. So on Instagram, it's also at fitresponder. Um, and uh, Or you could just email me, ted at fitresponder.com. So few different avenues right there to check us out and see what we're doing. Beautiful. Well, Ted, I want to thank you. I know you've got to go take care of some some family issues now, but uh, it's been an amazing conversation. I truly appreciate you being so generous with your time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Um, I feel the same, James. Thank you. I, I hope that this was impactful to some of your listeners. You do an awesome uh, job. Love your stuff. So thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.